0: Hello everyone, Stuckery here.
1: And I'm Gabby.
0: And welcome back to the podcast, my hoes. Welcome back to, once again, what is going to be the Chirp Audiobook Book Club Pick of the Month. And I am quite excited for this one here that we're doing this month, guys, because you all know me. You know I love context. You know that I love explaining all the random little details of the world and how it is that we got here to this day, which is important because the book that we're going to be talking about here is how we got to now. It's a book that covers a series of different inventions and the stories behind them and how those became a thing in the first place and what it is that they have done to impact the world today, which you're going to be going over a whole bunch of different stuff. And when I was looking at this and trying to determine what is it that we were going to cover when I was in the grocery store literally the other day and I realized just how many products in there were refrigerated, it got me thinking about one of the sections in the book and that is precisely the story that I wanted to tell you here today today with some of my own little information that I was able to find besides what is in the book. But on that note, if you want this book, if you want to really learn some fascinating stuff, then make sure to check out the links in our description, because down in the description, you're going to be able to find this for $2.99 for only a limited time. It's a great read. I guarantee you're going to find some enjoyment out of this, because I certainly know that I did. I would like to ask that if anyone out there listening to the podcast wants to go ahead and leave us a review, it really is something that is great and does help us. So whether it's on Apple or wherever it is that you get your podcast, please do leave us a review, and I really would appreciate it. Thank you all, and enjoy the show. Without further ado, let's go ahead and jump into this and explain the story of refrigeration. (laughs) Which Normally, Gabby is looking at me right now, and she's going like, uh, yeah, okay, because normally in this scenario, we're like, oh, we're going to talk about war. We're going to talk about some crazy, dumb thing that happened. Now I might as well be pulling a joke of, uh, yeah, did you leave your refrigerator running?
1: <laughs> okay, I am just, I was just making sure you weren't pranking us.
0: No, 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 no. It's not a prank. Because I promise you, for anyone who is listening to this right now, this story is actually fascinating. Because over the course of researching it, it took a way Way different turn than I ever anticipated would happen, and I learned a lot more going into this than I would in any other kind of subject. And I'll give you this as an example for anyone that thinks that this is not exciting. To this day, one of my favorite stories that I ever learned is the story of how the shopping cart developed, which sounds so dumb, but when you learn about these fascinating niche things in history, it's so weird and convoluted and connected to so many different things that you see how it is that it evolves. Anyway, the story of refrigeration. Let's get into this. For anyone who somehow does not know what I'm talking about here when I say a refrigerator, which I I don't, I literally don't know why that would ever be the case, considering that we live in the modern day and age. The refrigerator is such a key and important feature of modern life that it's so difficult to imagine what life would be like if we didn't have one. Like, that's the standard. If I'm going to be in any kind of scenario, there there are two things that I need, right? For my food, I need air conditioning. And I need refrigeration. I need AC for my food and I need AC for me. That's a very important thing that I need. And Gabby is looking at me right now with his like face like, what I'd are you talking about? I'd
1: be fine without the AC for me.
0: No, no. Under no circumstances. When we are next to each other and I am boiling in the bedroom, she is freezing. We're like po- polar opposites, except the only polar thing that is in here is her. And meanwhile, I'm magma. Did you see what I did there? I saw the stupid, what you did that. Stupid little pun. Okay, but refrigerators, when we're talking about this, is a very modern invention. There are older versions. There are things that people have been using for thousands of years in order to try and keep their food and other substances cooler, or I say cooler to basically not spoil and go bad, but the actual invention of a refrigerator is extremely recent, like within the past hundred years or so.
1: Do you remember when we were at Crystal Caves and the tour guide was talking about how all of the farmers saw this cave was so cold. So they brought in all of their food and their crops yeah. and their seeds and they started in the cave expecting it. Because they knew it was colder to preserve the food. And they came in and all of their meat was falling, their eggs and everything because...
0: There was so much moisture. moisture.
1: They didn't account for the moisture. Like, that's got to be heartbreaking.
0: Oh my God, it does. Especially after all that time that you spent harvesting and, and preparing everything only for that to happen. It Yes, that's one of the key problems when people think about stuff with refrigeration is it's not just a matter of keeping something cool. You have to keep it dry. You have to keep it safe. And that's very important for preservation because... Any sort of outside substance, and especially when water gets involved, water can be a highly, highly destructive force.
1: Well, didn't they use salt to preserve before they had cool, but also they use salt in colder climates. So,
0: yeah, they would. They would, because the whole point of what salt would help do is dehydrate something. Yeah. It would remove water. Exactly. So people have tried to keep food fresh by keeping it at lower temperatures for thousands of years for anything that they could do. Before mechanical refrigeration systems were introduced, they would use things like ice harvesting, where they would harvest ice, they would harvest snow, they would harvest these kinds of things to cool food. And that pretty much for the longest time was the only method that people actually had to refrigerate something.
1: See, I knew that because I watched Frozen.
0: Oh my God. Yes. I knew that you'd be referencing it. Yeah, that's a perfect example. When you see those workers for anyone who has seen the movie Frozen, and you see in the beginning where there they have those uh workers that are up in the mountains and they are cutting these massive blocks of ice and then putting those onto sleds, that, that's what I'm talking about. That is ice harvesting, and it's precisely that that would be utilized for keeping food cool. But then you think, okay, well, that's going to be something that is going to be done in places that actually have colder climates. It's what has mountains. Are, are they really going to need it? Well, the interesting thing, and we're going to talk about this later when we get to the ice trade part, is how ice was being shipped all around the world. Because of places like that.
1: How did they keep the ice cold enough to ship it around the world? A
0: lot of trial and error. And we're going to get into it because that is a whole story right there. And that's what I'm telling you. When I was covering this, I was like, oh my God, there's so much information that I did not anticipate going into this. Anyway, when we are talking about refrigeration, all kinds of different cultures throughout history have done varying different things in order to try and keep food cool. The Chinese would harvest ice from rivers and lakes as early as around 1000 BC, and they even had religious ceremonies where they would fill and empty ice cellars, and this was a very key and important thing to society. When you look going back into the pre-Qin dynasty, which is around 2100 to to, uh, 221 BC, people would use natural ice to keep food fresh and would make cold drinks. And I found this, that according to records in the Confucian classic, the Zhao Rites, the Zhao Royal Court in China had a special department. It had its own government bureaucratic administration called, quote, the ICE administration. There was an entire bureaucratic section of the government that was focused on the collection and administration of ICE, and it had 80 employees. The department would go and collect natural ice blocks every December, and then they would transport them to ice houses for storage to then be doled out for like the emperor, for uh, for the nobles, for the people who could actually afford it. And what would happen is that some senior officials would be awarded ice cubes by the Zhao royal court, which was a really big honor because that was a huge expense maintaining all of this stuff just to have cold drinks was a supreme luxury. So the idea of the king or emperor giving you ice was, oh, oh, that was a big deal. And so that system would last in place until the Ming Dynasty and the Qing Dynasty. And it is during the Qing Dynasty that you would see ice tickets that would be distributed to officials instead of sending the ice directly to them so that they would be allowed to go and pick up ice and get some for themselves. Like they would straight up receive a voucher that was not a buy one, get one free. It was a, hey, you're allowed to have some ice. And that was a thing that they would get. Other places would have their own kind of techniques. And some of these were remarkably advanced, such as if we look at the Persians, around 400 BC, the Persians would store food in these massive structures called yakchals. And I'm probably mispronouncing that, but I'm going to explain what it is that I mean. And for anyone who is a patron, I went and found a whole bunch of pictures of these yakchals. And I, I, I'm putting them on here to be able to uh, to to show first off, Gabby, because I put that here in the notes for you to be able to see. And then we're definitely putting this up on Patreon so you can see what I'm talking about, because, Gabby, if you if you scroll down in the notes from what it is that I can see right here, what, what, what does this structure look like? An igloo. An igloo. Yes.
1: Or uh, a, like bee honeycomb. See, that
0: was my thought is that it looks like a giant beehive. But I see what your point is, that it, it, it does look like a giant yeah, mud igloo, like igloo. That is also a beehive. Or a
1: circular pyramid.
0: A circular pyramid. <laughs> yeah, that's one way to put it.
1: An anthill. There's so many things it looks like.
0: Yeah, it's true. And these things were massive. All right. The ancients were way more clever than what we give them credit for. That, that is just the truth of the matter. And it's why every time someone disparages how people were in ancient times, it always Aliens. Li- aliens. God, you see, we just literally covered the episode on YouTube that is talking about how the pyramids were built and how it wasn't aliens. And we got a lot of angry comments on that YouTube video from people. They were who like, you try believe-
1: chiseling out one block and then dragging that block. I'm like, first of all, there were a lot of chisels and there were a lot of people dragging these blocks. But this is not the point of the episode.
0: And they had way more mechanical techniques than like people. Have you seen those video of like there's this guy who's in his like 40s or 50s. I can't remember what exactly his age is, but he shows how you can use simple mechanical like in like physics concepts to be able to move multi ton massive stones in in, around in place. Like when you watch and see how some of the stuff was done where they're able to use these little pivots and swing all these rocks around that no human on their own should be capable of doing. But using simple mechanical force and how they're able to utilize these little tools, it is incredibly impressive what they're able to do.
1: People are really relying strongly on the, oh, well, since they couldn't explain it, then they couldn't do it. I'm like, they probably knew what to do. They just didn't know the math equations for the physics calculations. Like, they're fine. They're okay. As Milo, like, said it work smarter not harder because they were basically like oh if we took a crane and we tried to lift this block it'll tip the crane over and I'm like yeah that's why they dragged it
0: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. like he
1: literally just did a
0: video on this too and or build a ramp and then on that ramp you use pulleys and multiple weights so that you can actually drag it up while reducing the amount of force that is required in order to be able to lift
1: but I still think the aliens did the refrigeration am I right
0: no damn no you are not it was a Scotsman (laughs) (laughs) Might as well be an alien at that point, but we're going to get into that (laughs) here later. (laughs) No. So these people in ancient times, right? They didn't have rockets. They didn't have electricity. They didn't have any of these kinds of technologies that we have today. But they came up with their own form of technology and techniques that were capable of doing astronomical amount of work. So the Yakchal, which name means like ice pit in ancient Persian, This was a type of ancient refrigerator that was built in the deserts of Persia, which now called Iran, which was made without electricity. It didn't have any modern coolants. It didn't have any of the elements that you would expect would be in a modern refrigerator. But this thing was so incredible that it demonstrates very easily the ability of humans to find solutions to problems that, well, normally you wouldn't think that they'd be capable of, but we are able to do such amazing and impressive things with such rudimentary tools, with whatever is available. So, here's the question. How does the Yakhchal work? Because again, as Gabby has described it, this thing looks like a giant mud igloo or a beehive or something along those lines. Well, this approach to refrigerators and engineering, this was mastered by Persian engineers around 400 BC. It's possible that this thing existed before that, But we know that by this time, they were making them with such skill that they were becoming very commonplace. And Yakchals, overall, are fairly simple things to make. So even places that were relatively poor were going to be able to afford them. Most Yakchals were these domed structures that would have an underground square-shaped containment area. And as I did say, I got a picture of it that I'm posting onto Patreon. So if there's anyone who wants to see that, you can go ahead and check that out. Essentially, underneath this dome, you would dig a containment area. And then after that, the dome would be erected over on top of that. And then in between each section where they would combine all these layers, they would use a type of mortar that was made of clay, sand, ash, and goat hair, along with lime. And this was a special mixture mortar called serouge. And it was such an impressive binding agent and good insulator that it was not only highly resistant to any kind of heat transfer, but simultaneously it was waterproof. And that, when applied to all of this layer of mud brick, was amazing kind of I mean, here. Here's the point of what I'm talking about this. Do you know how thick these things were? Like if we're looking at making a wall and we're looking at crafting something, how thick do you think something like this is, Gabby?
1: Like one foot?
0: no up two more, feet more
1: five feet, more ten feet
0: no okay you see it took it it multiple times on average these things were around six feet six feet thick so i am five foot eleven for anyone who's seen any pictures or videos of me who did not know i, I i'm not short my wife is just that tall she is she is only like an inch smaller than me People? i am not that short
1: where someone commented funniest Funniest comment I ever got was he looks like an oversized dwarf (laughs) next to her.
0: Yeah, because she is long and thin. And that's 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 my wife. She is very model like. So naturally, I look stubby next to her. But I am five foot eleven, meaning these walls, if I lay down on the ground, would still be an inch thicker than I am tall. That is insane. And so these things were made, again, of mud brick and also this mortar. So it was a very simple kind of material they would use. And the collection area for the water that they would end up utilizing inside of this thing would allow ice to be frozen even during the hottest months of the summer. And remember, we're talking about like Central Asia. We're talking about Iran and this kind of territory. You had any idea how hot this place could get during the summer months. We're talking boiling deserts. This would be an incredible amount of heat, and yet they were able to keep ice in these pits for well going into the summer months. And so what they would do is they would build these kind of containment areas, and then they would fill a section of it, or rather they would have water go underneath it, and they would use that in order to be able to cool the inside of the Yakhchal. And I'm going to kind of explain this. I'm not an engineer, but I'm going to explain it the best I can. And it's simultaneously why I was able to find a diagram that showed how it is that this whole thing is constructed. So what they would do is they would have water that would be brought to the Yakhchal either by directly transporting ice from nearby mountains or from diverting water from an aqueduct into the Yakhchal using underground channels called canats. And so adjacent to some of these yakchals, they would have a wall that would be east to west oriented, and it would be built on the south side of the yakchal and then water would be brought to it from the north side, and they would do this to try and shade it as much as possible to keep the water cool during the middle of the day as it entered into the yakchal because you don't want super hot water or anything going inside because that's just going to lead to more issues. Another device that they would have to try and keep it cool is a badgir, which is a type of wind catching mechanism. Think of it as a, uh, um, God, how do I even explain this? It's like a tube tunnel that's up at the top. Imagine a chimney, except instead of a chimney whose purpose was to expel soot or anything like that, its purpose was to catch wind. Like, it was a specialized kind of design that would allow a breeze to be caught and transported down to cool. And then as the air heated up, it would be able to rise up the other side and out So it's to cool. a
1: reverse chimney or a circulation. It's just a circulation it came, literally, system. It's a
0: circulation system. They developed a circulation system out of freaking mud brick and created this as a, it looked like a chimney. Yeah, that's exactly what would happen. So as the air would descend, this would cool. By the ice that was already inside of the Yakhchal, creating a nice cool breeze that would circulate through the entire thing. And then as it heated up, it would rise up and out so that it didn't stay inside of the Yakhchal where, you know, that heat would start to diffuse into everything else. So they did understand science. They did. That's the thing that a lot of people don't realize is that people were smart. It sounds so dumb when I say this here, but the ancients had so much more of an understanding of the natural world and how things work because they had to work with it. It's what they had to do constantly. Societies were way more developed than we give them credit for. That's the reality of the situation.
1: I wonder if the absolute lack of critical thinking that exists in our world today, everyone basically just thinks, "Oh yeah, everyone's always been this fucking dumb." Mhm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like
0: Yep, nope, exactly. So if you scroll down here, I put, I put this whole thing in the notes. Do you see the diagram that I'm talking about here? Yeah. Okay, so it, it doesn't show it well here because the whole thing looks square, but that's because that is the pit that would have been underneath the Yakhchal in the first place. So they would have this channel on the outside that air could be drawn into, that if the underground water, because you know how cool it can be if you go 10 feet, 20 feet underground, how much colder things are. So the air would be drawn down into this tunnel. Inside of the tunnel, the water cools the air, it passes through, and then it begins to rise up because there is a channel that is beneath, or not a channel, there is a, uh, a hole that is dug beneath that pit that allows the air to rise up into the Yakhchal, where it cools everything down in the cooled basement, and then as that air heats up, it rises through its own gap up to the top and then out of the wind tower. It's in a remarkably innovative system that was way more complex than what we give it credit for, but simultaneously so simple that once you actually look at it and understand, oh, hey, hot air rises, cool air falls, it, it's, it's such a simple concept that then makes sense, even if the actual structure was complex. The interesting thing is, you know how cold it can get in the desert, like at night?
1: Pretty oh, cold. Yeah,
0: so it's super hot in the day and super cool at night. So once inside of the yakchol, the water could potentially freeze overnight, which meant that any of the ice that they already brought in, since they were doing as much as they could to trap it, the process could be expedited through harvesting more ice. So by bringing that from the mountains and putting it inside of this, this meant that if it was already inside of the yakchol, the cool air and water that would be passing, as it's going through the system, it would cool, and they would be able to generate their own ice inside of a pit in, in the desert. Hey, everyone. It's here. And before we get back to the show, I would just like to thank today's sponsor, eBay Motors. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential and then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure that your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply.
1: This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news... Leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's peanut butter cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you.
0: They were able to make ice two and a half thousand years ago, not just harvest it. Make it in the desert, in the desert. Yeah, it's an incredibly impressive thing. And so from the Yakhchal, you're able to cool your meats, cool your vegetables, cool your dairy products, all these different kinds of things you're going to be able to utilize. And I know I've gone on a long rant about this, but when I was doing the research and I found this specific thing, I'm like, this is awesome. I am going to learn every single detail I can specifically about this. And so, Yakchals could be found in Iran, in Afghanistan, in parts of the West and Central Asia. And these things are still standing. The ancient ones from thousands of years ago, there are still some that are standing even to this day. And this is a part of the ancient Persian heritage. It is a part of the culture of Iran and is genuinely one of the most impressive things that I think I've ever learned when talking about ancient people. So, okay, okay. That's when we're talking about things with Persia. That's when we're talking about Central Asia and I know that we've talked about China. If you look at other societies, they would do similar things, though they didn't have many that were as complex in their understanding of science as like the ancient Persians did there. You had Hebrew people, the Greeks, the Romans, they would use pits as well by placing large amounts of snow into the pits and then covering them with insulating materials like grass or chaff or branches of trees, sawdust, Whatever kind of insulating material you could find, you would utilize that. The Romans had a tendency to build these massive ones that could be around 12 feet deep or more. And you can look this up, but there is an example of this in Switzerland where they they found a Roman ice pit. And to this day, I don't know if the experiment is still ongoing, but these archaeologists have been trying to recreate how the Romans did it, testing it with varying materials. Because for years, every year, they would run tests to see how long they could get the ice to last. And before, they just used the pit, then they used grass, then they used sawdust, and then they would use alternating materials and try and piece together the techniques of how they did it. But still, we don't know. We know that they utilized it for it, but we don't know how they were able to do all this in the first place. Ancient Egyptians and Indians would utilize uh, jars and evaporation techniques, because what they would do is they would take jars, right? And then they would cover those jars in like water, in moisture, and they could have them be multi-layered so that there would be uh, like, you could have like a 2 layered jar and then inside of that jar, you would have water. And so as the water in between those layers evaporates, it's stealing the heat of everything that was in the jar, meaning anything that was inside the middle level, or level, layer, layer, that's the word that I'm looking for. Inside the layer of the jar, That would cool it. So they were able to use evaporation techniques even going back like 2,000 years.
1: Interesting.
0: Oh, yeah. Yeah. And that is pretty much how it would be for a good 2,000 years. I've gone on this huge rant about all the stuff with ancient technology when talking about refrigeration. But these are really innovative techniques. But that is all that we would really see for the longest amount of time. Because because, if it
1: worked, I mean, why improve
0: it? Exactly. And they didn't have electricity. They didn't have the understanding of chemicals as we would later on to be able to develop things. I'm
1: assuming people didn't live where it was way too hot to make it work.
0: Yeah, populations weren't developed and necessary in places. Yeah.
1: It's why Florida wasn't inhabited until they invented AC.
0: Pretty much. Yeah. For anyone who is curious about that, Florida, even though it's one of the most populous states in, uh, in the United States, it ironically would not gain any of that population until, the, until two different things. Post-World War II and the invention of AC and also the development of Disney World.
1: Yeah, Which sounds like a
0: really fun and weird combination, but yes, that is the reality of the situation. So really, over time, when we're talking about refrigeration... Development and refrigeration would pretty much only be local, if possible, in places going into the 19th and the 20th century. And it's in the 19th century that you would start to see the ice trade appear. And it is just prior to that that we see the first steps towards modern mechanical refrigeration. So, okay, mechanical refrigeration. When we're talking about the actual harvesting of ice, this is something that is pretty difficult. It's also very dangerous. So over the course of history, people tried many different times to invent artificial ways in order to try and refrigerate things. Because to explain the concept, as I'm sure that everyone is already aware of in the first place, refrigeration is the process of removing heat from an enclosed space or from a substance in order to lower its temperature. That's the entire point. So it's not to add cool, it's it's heat and for, for anyone that doesn't know science, you're removing heat from a situation. So to cool foods, a refrigerator uses an evaporation of a liquid in order to absorb heat. The liquid or refrigerant will evaporate in an extremely low temperature, and this creates cool temperatures inside of the refrigerator. So that's how that works. In more technical terms, a refrigerator produces cool temperatures by rapidly vaporizing a liquid through compression. The quickly expanding vapor will require kinetic energy and it draws that energy that it needs from the immediate area, which then loses the energy and becomes cooler. So cooling, generated by the rapid expansion of gases, is the primary means of refrigeration today. And so it's these these techniques utilizing, for the longest time in history, chemicals that would be the fastest and most efficient way to be able to refrigerate things. Because you can use water, but water, unless extremely pressurized is not able to evaporate at lower temperatures. So that's why I have to find other things. When we are talking about the advent of modern refrigerators, that changed everything, right? That eliminated the need for ice houses and all the other crude means that they had before to keep food cool. And the first person to make a breakthrough on this was a Scottish professor by the name of William Cullen, who worked at the University of Glasgow in 1748. This is the mid-1700s, and this is a guy who designed a small refrigerating machine using the cooling effect of rapidly evaporating a liquid into gas, and his invention, though it was brilliant, it, it, it wasn't practical. Like, think about this. You don't have any idea how many times in history we've been able to demonstrate that something was done? Like, we technically right now are capable of doing fusion for, like, for nuclear technology, not just fission, but Fusion for energy purposes, but it is only recently that we've been able to get more energy out of a fusion reaction than we lost. Like it's only recently that that efficiency was high enough that it would be starting to be worth it. And so, in his demonstration, what Cullen had done is that he had used a pump to create a small vacuum over a container of diethyl ether, and when the diethyl ether began to boil, it absorbed the heat from the container surrounding, and it caused it to cool. And this was recorded in his only published chemistry-related paper, which has the best dry title I think I've ever read in anything. It says, and I quote, of the cold produced by evaporating fluids and some other means of producing cold.
1: Listen, he's a scientist, not a writer.
0: That is the driest (laughs) sentence I think I have ever read.
1: It's not dry. It's to the point. (laughs) <laughs> and some other means is what gets me. Down.
0: And some other means. Yeah. Yeah. That's literally it. And you'd think, okay, this is a huge. This is amazing. This is a hugely innovative thing that the world is going to go crazy for, right? No. No, it doesn't. The reaction to his invention was rather subdued. In fact, you could even say that it was <clears throat> lukewarm. Okay. Gabby, I, I I, see you. I see you looking at me there. I know.
1: Boo. I know.
0: I had to. I had to. You don't understand. That was necessary. You could even say that the reactions were... chilly.
1: Wow. I'm
0: sorry. Okay. Do wow. You, I know. I know. But you have to understand the context <laughs> of what it is I'm talking about here, right? Yes, this was a really big invention, but... The ice industry at this time was starting to grow and was a big business for local communities. It was something that you didn't really want to interfere with. Because what you have at this time is ice harvesting companies that would remove ice from frozen lakes and then they would store it in ice houses. And these ice companies would, over time, start to ship ice around the country and throughout the world. And the industry at this point was starting to get really big. It was a big employer, and Britain was a cold country, so you didn't really need a method of refrigeration. It's kind of like, let's say that this is the early 1900s, and someone has developed something that is going to be a, or not even the 1900s, but let's say it's the late 1800s, and someone developed something that is for, or for, for that's going to like interrupt the coal industry. Coal is huge in the 1800s going into the early 1900s. So the idea of someone coming along and making something that is going to interrupt that industry, the government is not going to be for it because that is an industry that gives a whole bunch of people jobs. So why would they try and do anything? It's kind of like one of the reasons as to why the United States has such amazing road systems is specifically in order to develop its trucking industry. Like that that was a thing that was done in an effort to help keep jobs for people, for transportation. It's, It's a whole line of business even if in some places in history, stuff like railroads would probably be more efficient, it doesn't give nearly as many people jobs. So, okay, that brings us to the ice trade, the thing that is referenced here in the first place. The ice trade, though it definitely existed earlier on more local levels, it really starts to get big going into the early 1800s. And it really first appears as a major player in things in the year 1806. Ironically enough, it is the result of really one man's major efforts, a man by the name of Frederick Tudor, who was a New England entrepreneur to, who wanted to export ice on a commercial basis everywhere. And I'm gonna explain what I mean, because you know what it is that I've talked about here before when I'm saying how they hit, like the ice industry was a pretty big business, It was almost always at this point a very local level where it wasn't transported very far because you couldn't transport ice very far. It wasn't very well insulated. It would melt over that time period. It wasn't something that was effective to do. So people would usually, when they would harvest ice, it would be for local communities and cities in the general region that you would get from mountains or from very cold areas in the wintertime, and then you would keep it there for that duration, but you wouldn't be able to transport it elsewhere very efficiently. It's 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 ice it's going to melt that's going to happen and so in new england ice could be a very expensive product in general around the area it was something that was really only consumed by wealthy people who were able to afford their own ice houses that could actually keep ice over time but nonetheless ice houses were still relatively common among people the wealthier elements of society in 1800 right you would Fill them with ice. that was cut out or harvested from the frozen surfaces of ponds and streams on their local estates during the winter months. And then you would use that over the course of summer. And as I said, it was harvested on more of a local level. So you could sell it. But what people primarily were doing was you'd have these people with huge estates. And then on that estate, there'd be a pond or a lake or something. And that's where you just harvested your ice from in the winter. So you would pay people to get that out, store it in your box, and hey, I'm this rich person, and I have ice for the summer, and no one else does. Didn't
1: all the other people just dig a hole?
0: Just dig a hole. The amount of labor and effort that that required was immense, and it's one of the reasons why you could only do something if you were wealthier.
1: No, they all get together one evening, you know, you're drinking with the local community, and you dig a giant hole. I know. No, now screw it. We all have ice.
0: And that's kind of part of it, is that people wouldn't have that kind of incentive. There wasn't a commercial incentive necessary, necessarily in order to be able to do that yet. That is where this guy comes in, right? So... As New York City and the region is growing rapidly, you're starting to see the economy grow. People are starting to become wealthier. And from that, you're going to be seeing an increased demand for luxury goods. And one of those luxury goods that everyone wants is pineapple. Pineapple Pineapple is a whole thing. (laughs) Yes, pineapple is definitely one of the things. But you also are going to really need ice. That's a that's a big thing that everyone wanted. And so what this did is that it created these small scale markets where farmers would go and harvest ice from their ponds and other territory in their, in their, what is is the word that I'm looking for? On their land, basically. Yeah, their property. There you go. Thank you. That's the proper word. They would harvest ice from their property and they would sell it at basically like the local farmer's market.
1: They just sell ice.
0: They just sell ice. Yeah.
1: Was having ice like a flex? Like, look at me. My drinks are cold.
0: (laughs) Literally. Yes. Yes, it was. For thousands of years, having ice for your drinks was a massive flex because the amount of labor that it required in order to get that was immense. And you oftentimes lost so much of it that you didn't really get all that much of it anyway. So imagine, if you will, that you're going to a restaurant and from the time that you order of like a food of substance right It's you think you're going to get a massive turkey and then by the time it gets out to you you have a thin little cut of a piece that was basically ice is your it's like it's degrading over time by the point that it gets to you we have to pay for the entire turkey just to get that singular slice Really, not a good comparison because meat does not do that. Degrade, yeah, <laughs> it doesn't degrade. Is that a popsicle?
1: You mean a popsicle?
0: Yeah, it's a meat popsicle. Oh my god! Wait, that sounds so wrong when I say that. Oh. Okay, this is what would happen. Some ships occasionally would transport ice from New York and Philadelphia for sale in the southern United States, particularly in areas like Charleston and South Carolina, that were much wealthier because that is where a lot of the crops were being exported out of the South. And this is what they would do, but it was really hard and it wasn't common. So what Tudor's plan was, was that he was going to export ice as a luxury good to wealthy members of the West Indies and the Southern United States, places that didn't have a chance to get ice. And so he hoped that by doing this, that these people were going to go all in on trying to get this product because, again, we're talking about the South. We're talking about stupidly hot, sweltering summers. And it's hard for them to get, but he knew that this was going to be risky because this was an idea that not many people were able to tap, like able to tap into. And so if he did this, potentially other competitors were going to get involved. So he moved to try and acquire local monopoly rights in his new market in order to obtain as high of prices that he could potentially get. That's what he wanted to do. He wanted to try and get as high of prices going into the situation as he could because otherwise it wasn't going to be worth it. Do you know why? Why? Because it's ice. And if you can't secure a high price for your product and your product melts, you are literally losing all of it. It's, 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 It's ice. It's going to melt. You're not going to be able to maintain it for a long period of time. So you have to sell it. You have to sell it fast and you have to get it for as high of a price as you possibly can, right? So he started by trying to establish this monopoly in the Caribbean, and he invested in getting his own brigantine ship in order to transport ice that was bought from farmers around Boston. And at the time that he did this, he was regarded as a bit of a loony. Who, in their right mind, would go and buy a ship? Who would buy a ship and then use it to transport ice, a good that is going to melt to try and sell? It seemed crazy. And for you and me looking at this, it sounds at first like a sound business model, but there's a very key reason as to why, for many people, it wasn't. First off, what would typically happen with merchants at this time period, Gab, is that they would usually not have their own ships. They would instead rent spaces on ships to be able to transport goods, right? That's what they would do, because you wouldn't want to invest in buying your own ship, because if something happened to your ship, you were out not just all the product that you tried to ship in the first place, but simultaneously, you're out of that ship, and that is a stupidly expensive thing to invest in. Secondly, you typically didn't want to transport something like ice, because ships, at this time, were made of wood. And you know what happens when you have lots of water that is constantly covering the inside of a wooden ship?
1: I'm assuming it causes some mold and degradation.
0: Exactly. So it would damage the ships. Not to mention there's the whole... And that's just the danger to the ship itself. There's also the fact that you have to consider that ice is going to melt, which means that the product that you were trying to ship in the first place is going to be constantly losing a whole bunch of its value because it's going to be shrinking. And it takes months to ship anything from New England... All the way down to the Caribbean.
1: Have you heard of shrinkflation? What they could have done is not told anyone that it shrank and just charged them the exact same. It's ice. Companies do that today. I know. <laughs> and it's not ice, it's like <laughs> potato chips and cookies.
0: Yeah, yeah. No, I know exactly what you're talking about. So here's how it worked out, though. The first shipments that he wanted to launch took place in 1806 when Tudor went and transported an initial cargo of ice to the Caribbean island of Martinique. But it didn't go so well. Sales were hampered by the lack of local storage facilities, both for Tudor's stock and any of the ice that was being bought by domestic customers. And as a result, the ice in his stocks quickly would melt away. So check it out, here's straight up what happened. He shows up to the Caribbean with a ship full of ice. And then over the course of that transportation, because he didn't really understand insulation well, Over half of the ice in his cargo melted in the first place. Like it was an insane amount of meltage. So he lost half of his product there. Then while he is in the Caribbean, because he is one of the first people to be down there, there are literally no storage facilities where any of the ice can go in the first place (laughs) while he's trying to sell it. So he's sitting there, on the docks, trying to sell his ice, and people are buying some of the ice, but as he's trying to sell it, it's continuously melting because he has literally no place he can store it.
1: Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and, 6-1 since that matters, and, what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Everybody shush! William Shatner has something to say.
0: Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? So I think if I remember the uh, the statistic on when I was looking at this, he lost 66% of his product in just the transportation. And then even after getting there when he only had 34% of the product left, most of it still just melted away, meaning that the trip was basically a waste. But but he did learn from this. He learned from his experience and he decided, okay, well, since I have to come down here in the first place, I'm going to build a functioning ice depot in Havana, Cuba. And despite the U.S. trade embargo that was declared in 1807, he would manage to trade successfully again by 1810. That being said, he wasn't able to acquire exclusive legal rights to import ice into Cuba, but he was able to maintain an effective monopoly through his control of the ice houses because since he was building the ice houses, none of the other merchants that were trying to do what he did were going to be able to store ice in the places that he owned. So that meant that he could store his product longer and be able to sell that more effectively when the time was right. Then, of course, there was a little event called the War of 1812, which would briefly disrupt his trade. But then over the years, Tudor would begin to export fruit back from Havana to the mainland on the return journey, and it was kept fresh with part of the unsold ice cargo. So remember what we talked about before when we when we talked about pineapple, which I'm glad that you mentioned that whole thing before. When you are trying to transport fruit at a time where it takes months to ship anything, right? Yeah, it's very difficult to do that. So if someone bought an entire cargo hold full of pineapples and then tried to transport them by the time those pineapples got to anywhere around 95% of the product would be rotten it wasn't good anymore. And I'm not kidding with that, that, that amount of number. Anywhere between 90 to 95% of the product, usually gone. And this is one of the reasons why importing fruits from anywhere was such a luxurious thing that you could do if you were wealthy. So he had the genius idea of going, well, I'm not going to be able to sell all this ice while I'm down here. What if I utilize some of that ice buy up a bunch of fruit, and then take that fruit back with me to places that you can't grow this fruit and sell it because instead of losing 90% of my product, I'll only lose half of it. The amount of money that you could potentially make on that, and remember, some people were paying as much for a pineapple at this time as what would cost a mortgage for a house. For a freaking pineapple, because that's how you showed off your wealth.
1: It's worth it. Have you ever had, well, you haven't had a good pineapple because you're from the US, but I, let me tell you,
0: uh-huh. iconic. Uh-huh. I'm
1: sorry. The fruit in the US, even if it's like imported from the island it comes from, I don't know what they do, but it is so bland. I, I-, I have a vendetta against the fruit sold in the United States. First of all, I'm paying this much for something that tastes like garbage. Fix it. <laughs> Fix. It. I don't know who is listening to this, but if you can fix it, fix it. Thank you.
0: Yeah, Okay. I understand. And and if you're wondering then at that point as to how valuable any of the stuff that we're talking about is, yes, fruits could be as much as, you know, mortgaging a house in some cases, like in the case of pineapple. But ice could be very expensive, depending on the time that we're talking about here, though also simultaneously, it's going to vary depending upon what we're using.
1: Do you think any like really wealthy like men back in the day would come home and be like honey guess what I bought and she's like oh a diamond ring no ice Ice. like
0: it's do ice, you think it ice happened? baby
1: oh Steve.
0: please <laughs> the amount of disappointment in your eyes and voice even as you're laughing I'm I know just
1: really upset I contributed to you making that joke you
0: always do I you me married me so you have setup. to deal with it wow <laughs> wow so When we are talking about the expense of this stuff when it comes to ICE, right, this would vary depending upon the amount of competition that we're talking about, right? So in Havana, in Cuba, as an example, Tudor's ICE could sell for around $0.25 per pound, which doesn't sound like a lot today, but that is around $3.70 when you look at this for just for inflation in 2010. And if you look at it now in 2023, considering how much prices have risen since that time, you're probably still talking about, say, $4, right? So that is eight times the amount of price that would have been at that time. And that is per pound. Gabby, how much does a how, how much do those bags of ice sell for when we go to like Kroger or Walmart or any of that stuff?
1: Do you think I've ever bought a bag of ice? I refuse to put ice in any drink I'm having.
0: OK, yes, I know that. But I'm trying to remember when you go to the store and you buy like the five, 10 or 20 pound bag, I'm pretty sure that that's like four or five dollars still, right? And I'm I'm, I'm trying to remember that. I should have looked this up prior to talking about this in the first place because I'm realizing where this is a really good thing that expresses the difference.
1: So, on average, a bag of ice will cost anywhere from as little as $1 for a 10-pound bag to as much as $6 for a 20-pound bag. The cost of ice will depend on the amount in the bag and the store selling it. Okay. With grocery stores, gas stations, and even fast food chains selling bags of ice.
0: Okay. So, in other words... Today, the cheap ice that you could potentially get—let's let's just say, for example, you're, if you raise the price, you're talking twenty-five cents per pound. So, what he was making at the time was the equivalent of eight times what it is today. That is, if you were trying to buy a ten-pound bag of ice, instead of paying a dollar or two or three dollars, you were paying forty dollars for a bag of ice today. Yeah, yeah. That's insane. And that is the kind of money that he could potentially make. And so, where he had a strong market share, he could respond to any other traders that were trying to trade in that area by lowering his prices considerably and selling his ice at a more unprofitable rate of one cent or 20 cents per pound, which is an incredibly low price. And at that price, this was genius, right? Because what would end up happening is yes, he wouldn't make any money off of it, but. He was such a wealthy businessman already by this point that he didn't need to worry about that. He had made so much money that he was able to use his money to hurt other people. Because think about it. If you're a merchant, you saw what this guy is doing. You're trying to get in on the same deal yourself. So you invest all of your money, get a ship, get some ice, go down to the Caribbean, and you try and sell it yourself. He sees this and then sells off all his ice so that at a cheap rate so that no one wants it anymore, and now you are stuck there in the Caribbean with a hold full of ice in your ship that no one wants anymore. What happens? It melts. Meaning all of the money that you invested, you're not able to sell any of it. It's not clothing, it's not some kind of good that you're able to transport to another place and sell off. Your product is literally melting away every single second, meaning anyone that tried to copy him, he would quickly undercut his own price and drive them out of business, bankrupting them. He did this multiple times to different people that tried to compete with him.
1: He was like the Walmart of ice.
0: Yes, he was literally the Walmart or Amazon of ice. He did that multiple times to people. And so by the middle of the 1820s, he was managing to ship around three. Thousand tons of ice, or not him. He was shipping around two thousand tons of it because the three thousand was the total, and he was responsible for two thirds of it. He was regarded as the ice king of New England. That was his title, which is a kind of dumb title to have in the first place. But you know that, that that's ice what it was king. that he was. He was the he was ice the king.
1: Elsa of New England.
0: He was. The, he was
1: the. <laughs> I, I can't know, wait okay. to tell Stoya about Elsa.
0: How it was a real guy, but it was an eccentric, crazy businessman in the 1800s that bankrupted a bunch of people and ruined their lives. I'm
1: not going to tell her that I'm going to tell her the Disney version. Thank you very much.
0: Yeah. So because he is starting to transport more and more and more ice, ice begins to drop in terms of price. Like it's such considerable volumes that now you're able to actually get a decent amount of it for a lower price than what it was before. Meaning that instead of just the wealthy elite, like the plantation owners in Cuba or these other places that were buying it before, now a wider range of consumers is able to get it to the point where supplies even start to become overstretched because they're not able to produce enough ice to fit the demand of the people that want it. So they need to start going out and looking for new sources of ice. Like it's crazy. What would happen is that Tudor would have to move beyond Boston, where all of the stuff was primarily sourced out of, and change from just using his existing suppliers to harvesting stuff from Maine, and even harvesting from passing icebergs. Like he would straight up send out ships into the harbor where there were icebergs in winter and have crews of men harvesting the ice out of these in order to try and then store and sell. It's insane. But neither one of these sources that he was using ever proved to be really practical. So what he ended up doing was he teamed up with another businessman, a guy by the name of Nathaniel Wythe. And this guy would take advantage of the ice supplies of Boston on an industrial scale. What they did is they created a new type of, uh, of cutter, because before they would have teams of men that would just be using hand saws to cut out these big blocks out of the ice, Right. But by using a horse pulled ice cutter, which is basically imagine a plow, except instead of a plow, it's a gigantic saw on the end of that. And in 1825, they would use this to cut massive square blocks of ice more efficiently than any of the previous methods. He then agreed to supply Tudor from Fresh Pond in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and it reduced the cost of harvesting ice from 30 cents, which was $7.30 a ton, to only 10 cents. So he managed to cut the price by a third of what it was before to harvest, which only increased profitability. And then they used sawdust to insulate that ice, and they ended up spending way more money trying to get sawdust than they would on any other kind of product to just keep this insulated. They spent around $16,000 a year, or in today's money, almost $400,000. And a lot of this information that I'm pulling this from here, like I, I was trying to find all that I could on the the records for the amount that it was. So I ended up pulling this directly from um, um, from one of the sections of the sources that I was using, because I'm looking at this and going the amount of numbers that they're presenting in all of this is insane, because the tonnage of ice that he shipped out was as if a person was harvesting dozens of icebergs. Imagine shipping dozens of icebergs worth of ice down into the Caribbean. It's mind-boggling. So over the course of the next 30 years, Tudor and his business are able to grow. And even then, despite all that he did to try and drive his competitors out of business, they would grow as well. So they began to ship ice out to San Francisco to meet the demands of the gold rush. And by the 1840s, the ice trade, using the ice from New England and Norway, because Europe and Norway in that region starts to get involved as well, they're able to ship blocks of ice all over the United States, through most of Europe, and even as far as Australia, they're shipping ice. By the 1850s, the industry was making around $8 million a year, or today, $138 million. This meant that around two Billion kilograms of ice was being kept in storage at any one time. If you do the math on the prices, that is insane. And so check this. Do you remember Gab? Um, God, what was the movie? A million ways to die in the West. Remember that one? It was
1: like a goofy comedy movie. Yeah, yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. That it was all the people that were just dying in really stupid ways. Cause it was talking about how much he hates the West and how you could die so easily at that time. Yeah. Do you remember um, the, the scene with the ice block? no. Oh, you don't. Oh, wait, no, you turned away. I remember when we were watching it together and you could not watch that because it was gross to you. For anyone who has not seen the movie that is wondering what I'm referencing here, if they want to understand just how big these ice blocks that were being shipped around, they would have an entire horse drawn cart that was covered in layers of insulation, sawdust and everything else. And these were blocks that were as big as multiple humans stacked on top of each other. They were thousands of pounds, potentially. And what would happen on occasion is that these things were so dangerous when transporting that very easily, since it's ice and it could melt and create a slippery surface, if you opened the latch on that thing improperly and didn't have it properly secured, the ice block could slide out the back of the horse cart and crush you. Which is something you see in the movie of it literally falling on top of a guy and popping his head like a melon.
1: Ew! Ew!
0: Yeah, remember, that's why you looked away at that time. You did not want to, um, you did not want to look at it. It was definitely a very dangerous thing because when we're looking at this, by the 1870s, the ice trade had developed all over the world, and in particular, it started to rise in Europe. Hundreds of men were being employed to cut ice from the glaciers of Grindelwald in Switzerland, and in Paris, they began to import ice from all over Europe. Norway would enter the trade and focus on the exports to England, mostly from an area known as Lake Oppegard. And this is where you kind of see, remember the whole thing in Frozen, where it's this giant massive lake, and then there's these Scandinavian men that are in there, or I guess Scandinavian-esque, since there isn't an actual real country that they're utilizing in that, and they're cutting those ice blocks? That's what that is a reference to. In the mid-1800s, the Norwegians harvesting ice and transporting it. That, that, that's, that's directly what that is. So... They would do this, and at the peak of this trade, with the amount of people that were employed in it, there were approximately 90,000 workers all over the United States and Europe that were employed in this trade, making almost 900 million kilograms of ice to be harvested, and this was exported from Norway every year. But that's not all over the world. That's that is, 900 million kilograms of ice were exported from Norway every year. Even more was harvested out of places going into, like, the United States, where it was being shipped on a wider level. And so to harvest this ice, people had to find areas where it was cold enough in the winter to fully freeze ponds and rivers, not just on the surface. Like, like you can't go to one of those things where on the uh, it's only, like, the top couple inches are frozen. You needed to find places that would completely freeze. And that made places like New England and Norway and other very northern regions in Europe perfect to do this. It was dangerous. It was deadly at times. It involved cutting out massive blocks of ice that were two meters long using handsaws, chisels, axes, and that job had to be done at night. Think about this you can't even see what is going on at the time here you had to do it at night because that is when the ice was thickest and coldest it wasn't uncommon at this point for people to get really hurt there was huge risk of just falling into the holes that other people were digging in order to create ice in the first place especially in the dark because no one could see people would regularly be injured by ice blocks as you try and pull them out of the ice Cracking, part of it falls over, crushes it. I guy. don't know
1: if your info is that sound because as I've seen in the 2013 documentary, Frozen, they were singing and it was done during the day. And reindeer were involved.
0: <laughs> reindeer were involved. That's actually that actually is a true thing. So in many different places in Norway and going up into Sweden, they would utilize reindeer as kind of draft animals as they could. You would harvest reindeer meat, because it was a thing that could be worked, but you could also Sometimes hook reindeer up to pull things. That's why they would have sleighs. So the whole reindeer sleigh is a real concept that has been used multiple times in northern countries, in places like Sweden and Norway, where they would pull that stuff. So you'd harvest the ice, throw that onto the back of a sled, and then a reindeer would pull it.
1: I want a. That was real. reindeer.
0: You want a reindeer? I want to eat a Ew. reindeer. No, I'm still angry about my reindeer meat getting seized when we came back from Norway. I remember that anyone who works in customs that is listening (laughs) to this right now, you still have my bitterness. I don't
1: know what they do with stuff. They probably burn it.
0: They probably either threw it away or some guy at his lunch decided to eat it just because he could. And if that is the case, you know what? I'd actually be less mad about that because at least someone got to eat it. If they threw it away, I would be really annoyed (laughs) either way. This, at the time, from what I'm describing, is a huge industry, and this would go on for decades with natural ice being harvested on a huge industrial scale that was keeping thousands of people employed. But okay, you may ask them, at this point, what about refrigerators? Was that not the entire point of this, like the episode that we were trying to talk about here in the first place, and now I've spent a good half an hour going on and on talking about literally harvesting ice? Well, okay, let's go ahead and get into that. In the end, it was known, as I said, since William Cullen back in 1748, that it was possible to cool water using mechanical devices, and attempts were made to produce artificial ice on a commercial scale going into the 1850s, and various different methods were invented in order to try and do this in the first place. There was a guy called Jacob Perkins that had a diethyl ether vapor compression refrigeration engine that he invented in 1834, but that just didn't work very well. There was also ammonia-based approaches, such as those that were advocated by a person called Ferdinand Kerr and Charles Tellier. But here's the thing. The resulting product they make from this is called plant ice or artificial ice. It's why over the course of this episode, I have been saying the word natural ice over and over and over again. Plant ice was good, sort of, but there were many different obstacles to actually commercialize its production. See, if you're going to be making ice on a factory level, like actually in a building and you're not harvesting it naturally, then this means that you're going to have to use a lot of fuel. You're going to need coal. You're going to need capital for machinery. You're going to need all the money and technology to be able to buy and purchase the chemicals that are necessary to produce this ice at a competitive price. And so early technology just wasn't very reliable. Ice plants face the constant danger of explosions occurring and subsequent damage to the surrounding buildings for decades. I, I mean, again, remember this, they're utilizing chemicals to artificially create heat reactions in order to be able to sap heat from things in order to make ice. That, that's the point. And so ammonia-based approaches had this very dangerous side effect and possibility of leaving ammonia in the ice. Because this could happen during the chemical process of creating it, or oil or any other substances or ammonia could escape from the machines and potentially get in the ice. It's, it's one of the reasons why for the 19th century, even though plant ice did exist, it was generally regarded as being less suitable for human consumption than natural ice, as this was not clear. And it sometimes left this milky white residue inside when it, uh, when it was done. Like, imagine if you got yourself a nice glass of Coke or something like that, and then after drinking it, you look at the bottom, and instead of having a clear glass, there was, like, this powdery, white, milky substance and gunk that was stuck to the bottom of your glass. Yummy! Yeah, exactly. That's, that's not something that people are going to, to want. Artificial ice production was still marginal going into the 1880s. Like, it existed for decades prior to this, but it wasn't really... All that common, but it was around that point, going into the 1890s and then into the early like 1900s, that improvements in technology finally made it possible to produce plant ice at competitive prices, and production began to rise towards the end of the century. And you're probably going to wonder at that point, okay? Well, even if it's competitive, why do it? Very key reason. The key weakness with natural ice over history is that you had to harvest it in winter at places that were cold. So what about all those places that potentially, if say some kind of bad harvest, if there was an accident, if anything happened, what about being able to produce it on a a local level, right? So ice plants were usually first established in more remote areas where natural ice was not very cost effective. Like the first places that you really started to see it were in the hotter climates in places like Australia or India. And these were places that ended up being dominated by plant ice. And in the 1880s and 1890s, you started to see ice factories that were being built in Brazil. And this stopped them from being able or not able from from needing to import ice as much.
1: So there's no ice plants anymore because we could just simply open our refrigerators, right? Basically, yes. Well, well,
0: actually not true, because remember, there's those companies that make ice that sell the big bag. Well,
1: yeah, but they're not going to be like as massive of a corporation or anything like this so i'm just saying it would be really cool to look at the giant uh businesses that were built around things that are now obsolete essentially monopolies because
0: huge industries that disappeared like whaling yeah oh that's a good idea i love that idea oh blubber ambergris like literally the whale oil Uh, Yeah, no, that's that's a fantastic idea. I love that. You know what? No, I'll make a note of that. I'll make a note of that because that sounds like it would be a really fun episode here. Okay, so when you look at places like the United States, this was one of the huge producers of ice, but it didn't necessarily need it as much anymore going into the 1800s. The number of plants began to gradually increase in the southern states, which meant that it wasn't going to be nearly as cost effective to ship ice because that was really the thing that you needed, right? The whole point of why ice was expensive in the first place in places in the South where it was hotter is that you needed to be able to transport the ice from places that were colder after harvesting it. So the only thing that you needed for something to be cost-effective was to produce ice in a place that was lower than the cost of transporting the ice in the first place. And if you did so, then it was actually going to be something that was viable. So long-haul shipping companies would continue to ship cheap natural ice for the majority of refrigeration, but if there was a sudden surge in demand or something else happened like an accident, in order to avoid having to hold backup inventories, they would now become major ice producers and not just harvesters as these same companies would then go and create these ice plants in the South so that they didn't have to transport the goods as much. Which brings us to the point of finally Refrigerators. Because before, all this ice that is being transported, people have these ice boxes for their own kind of units that you would stick a massive block of ice in. And that was basically your refrigerator. It would be a big block of ice that food and stuff would be placed around. And boom, there you go. There's your refrigeration. Then in 1913, you have an American by the name of Fred W. Wolf who invents the home electric refrigerator. First of its kind, which featured a refrigeration unit that was on top of an ice box, because the ice box itself—that's what they're referring to— at least call something a refrigerator, but for the longest time in history, it was an ice box. Mass production of domestic refrigerators would not begin until 1918, though, when William C. Durant would introduce the first home refrigerator that had a self-contained compressor, something that was actually going to allow it without ice, to be able to refrigerate your, your refrigerator. I'm trying to figure out how exactly it is that I should structure that sentence here in my head, and I'm realizing that i just going to end up repeating myself over and over again, trying to explain it. But you get what I mean. It was the device that we see in modern refrigerators that it had its own self-contained unit that was able to actually cool things down. Problem, though. Do you know how expensive this thing was? Pretty expensive. For anyone who doesn't know history of appliances, and I think this would be a hilarious one to look at the cost of what things initially were, when microwaves were first introduced going into, I believe it was the 1960s, 1970s, microwaves cost as much as a car at that time. Easily. They were so stupidly expensive. The first home refrigeration units would cost anywhere between $500 and $1,000. Which is the equivalent of today, anywhere between six to 13 grand for a refrigerator. You know how you can go to Best Buy or some of those places and you see one of the cheap refrigerators and it's like, you know, $400 or you get a mini fridge for like $270, $250, something like that. And you'll see one of the more expensive smart fridges that's like 1,000 to $1,800 or something like that. Yeah. 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 These things at that time were anywhere between six to 12 times the cost of a refrigerator today, which meant that at the time, domestic refrigerators were definitely considered a luxury item for the first years of their use, and you would not really see a lot of them. They would develop, though, over time, as more companies would start to produce them, and they would get smarter, more efficient, and better for how they would make them, so that from the 1920s, you'd have inventors, like as I said, Ferdinand Kerr, who would use foul-smelling toxic gases such as ammonia, methyl chloride, and sulfur dioxide as refrigerants, which led to a whole series of fatal accidents from leaks in the 1920s. This stuff was dangerous. But as they got smarter, as they got better, they would develop synthetic alternatives for a safer, less toxic gas that could now be used for vapor compression processes. So refrigeration was now going to be able to utilize Freon, which I know, obviously, you as a scientist understanding this, and we know the history of what happens with Freon. It's, it's obviously not something that is great now. But at the time, this was revolutionary because Freon, with its low boiling point, with surface tension, its viscosity, this meant that it was an ideal refrigerant, and it was a safer refrigerant that could help home refrigerators increase in popularity. By the 1940s, refrigerators became even more widespread in private homes, and compressor refrigerators would use Freon, and this would become the standard for almost all home kitchens. Compressor refrigerators are still, to this day, the most common form of home refrigeration, though they now use things that are not Freon, such as this one that I was able to find here, and I don't know if this is actually the standard for all of them, but this is the information that I was able to find. It's not even a catchy name. I prefer Freon, which sounds like a bad thing to say but it's HFO-1234YF, which sounds, on the surface, looking at this, like I just made that up, but that's its name, and so Freon, over time, gradually gets phased out as it comes to light that uh, things like chlorofluorocarp, uh, chlorofluorocarbon. Gabby, say the word for me, Chlorofluorocarbon. Flo- say the word for me. <laughs> I don't know what word you're trying to say. I know because I'm butchering it here. Chlorofluorocarbons, right? CFCs. CFC. Thank you. That was the proper term. I should have used that in the first place when talking about this. It, they, they use CFCs, right? And CFCs are not good for the ozone layer of the planet. Like it, it, is, it is not good. So this is why things like Freon are banned and you can't actually use them for commercial development anymore. Now, there are refrigerators that use just thermoelectric cooling, which require no chemical refrigerants whatsoever. And that is refrigerators. Like, guys, I'm telling you this right now. There's so many more details of all this that I could talk about, even going into the history when I was researching this, and I started on this whole path of like, oh, here's refrigerators, here's the coolants, here's all the stuff they used. And then when I found that whole story on ice and how that became a huge thing, this was fascinating. And this is the kind of stuff that if you want to know more, if you want to know the details, then you're going to need to check out this month's audiobook. So please, by all means, click the link down in the description. You can get this month's book for a grand total of, again, $2.99, How We Got to Now by Steven Johnson. And it's really some fascinating stuff where you can learn so much more than what I've just been able to present here. Truthfully, I was going to be going on about this for the next, you know, hour or two. I still wouldn't even cover half of it. But everyone, that, my friends, is the story of refrigerators. Thank you very much for listening. I hope you all really enjoyed today's episode. And Gabby, I hope that you really did not get too annoyed with me and all of my puns and everything that I did over the course of this, because I know that that was a little bit of a try for you.
1: I love your puns. I just don't know if the audience loves your puns.
0: Yeah, fair enough. Either way. But now, before we go ahead and end things here today, it is time for our family history. And the one that I have here says, hi, greetings from Croatia. My name is Luca, and I love your podcast. Every time I drive alone or do work in the field or around the house, I listen to your podcast, and I love it. Keep up the good work. Thank you, Luca. I really do appreciate that. I am from a small village in Istria, Croatia. My story takes place in World War II, and Istria at the time was part of fascist Italy. But in my village, there weren't any fascist people, and people supported and hid as partisans. So one time, There was a small party of German soldiers that was passing through our village, and one morning, soldiers took up everyone from their houses and demanded from the people to tell them where one of their comrades was. Over the night, one of the soldiers had gotten lost, and they blamed the villagers and were convinced that some of the villagers had kidnapped him or even killed him. So, they started lining everyone up, met every man from the village, at the main town square to shoot them all. The village priest knew German and tried to tell them that the villagers did nothing, Then came in my grandfather. He was a young boy, and that morning, like every other, he was taking his cows to pasture in the fields around the village. And he saw what was going on and told them that he saw a German soldier sleeping under a tree. German soldiers got back their comrade, and they didn't kill anyone, and the soldier was passed out drunk. He got so drunk that he got lost in the night and passed out under a tree and continued to sleep. Because of one drunk guy, a lot of people could have died that day, but because the priest bought time and because of my grandfather who got there in time, everything turned out well. I hope you found that story interesting and that I didn't make too many mistakes. I understand, Luca, that your English is not your first language, but that was still remarkably good. And that is a Entertaining, if simultaneously a very dark and real story, because it's completely understandable considering the stance that the Germans and other fascist powers took towards partisans at the time and collective punishment. That is a truly insane story. And I'm glad that it worked out well so that from that you could exist to this day. Everyone, thank you very much for listening. I hope you have a good rest of your day. And make sure to send in any of your family histories here through the links that we have. You can check our website here for, uh,
1: Contact information.
0: Contact information. I don't know why I fumbled there at that last part, trying to remember what the final word was. But either way, I appreciate all of you. Thank you very much for listening. And we'll see you next time, guys. Goodbye, everyone.
1: Bye.